You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. At this hour, state and House leaders are holding a news conference to announce plans to go back into legislative session on Monday. Getting back to do the people's work will have a different feel. It is what Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono is experiencing in the nation's capital this week as the Senate is back in session. We talked to her this morning about her concerns as Hawaii begins to relax the COVID restrictions. I think that first and foremost, we need to continue to recognize that this is a health care issue, first and foremost, because we can't reopen or ease up on restrictions unless people can go back to these activities safely. And so um, I'm glad that Hawaii has had 17 or 18 consecutive days of fewer than six new cases. And Hawaii is acknowledged as a place where we uh, seem to have done a good job of uh, home and observing the social distancing and, and other things. I think we've been really fortunate in that regard. But as we reopen, and you know the governor has declared that certain things can reopen. I know he's doing it with the people's safety in mind, and they're still going to need to observe social distancing, hand washing, and all of those things that we need to continue to do because this pandemic is uh, far from over. And state lawmakers are struggling with how to avoid layoffs and pay cuts for yes. government workers. So I think they'll be mm-hmm. tackling that next week. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? This is one of the reasons, Catherine, that I and other Democrats in the Senate have called for COVID-4 that would include money for state and local governments to help them with their huge budget shortfalls. I know that Hawaii is facing a potential of something along the lines of a $1.6 billion budget shortfall. And so I think there will be all kinds of efforts to prevent cutting up programs that people rely on, uh, furloughing, you know, people, and that's going to just add to all of the harm that's going to happen to people and their families. So uh, everybody's looking for different ways to forestall that. But at the federal level, the thing we can do is to pass a COVID-4 that has a lot of support for state and local governments. Unfortunately, um, Mitch McConnell is not on that page as yet. In fact, he started off by saying that state and local governments would file for bankruptcy, which is one of the most irresponsible things that I have ever heard from someone who considers himself a, a national leader. It's one thing we need to do. And then COVID-4, I would like, as long as we have come back to the Senate, <laughs> we should be doing oversight hearings uh, on what's happening to the $3 trillion of taxpayer money that we put to help people. What is happening with that? We should have oversight hearings, uh, not the kind of hearings that uh, most of the, uh, at least on the committees that I've set, I have I have hearings on, they're not exactly related to COVID, particularly a hearing we had yesterday in the Judiciary Committee for a a circuit court nominee whose seat isn't even going to be up until available until September, and he is a, a very very uh, ideologically conservative, just the kind of judge that Trump continues to pack the courts with. So that is not a, the kind of hearing that I would like Congress to come back for. Right. You want to focus on the COVID crisis. COVID-4. Mm-hmm. Because we know that there's still a tremendous need out there. And I think the PPP program, as well as IDO, uh, that's another program for basically a short-term kind of uh, loans to small businesses. Uh, look at all the people who are uh, on unemployment in Hawaii. One out of three Hawaii workers are, uh, are on unemployment compensation. That's huge. We need to deal with all of that and, of course, the millions and millions of people who are unemployed across the country. So the need continues, and and we should not be taking a pause, which is what Mitch McConnell and uh, the president is saying. We should take a pause. And they say the people who can afford a pause in this pandemic are the ones who uh, benefited from the $1.5 trillion in tax cuts that the Republicans gave to them. But all the people who are out of work, uh, you know, everybody else, we can't have the small businesses who are going under we can't afford to take a pause. They can't afford to take a pause. You know, you talked about oversight, and I know there was concern mm-hmm. that uh, with the first uh, rollout uh, with the CARES Act that we didn't put in enough safeguards, and we were seeing you know large bailouts for companies when they should have gone to small businesses. And there was also concern that some of the checks were cut to people who had died. And, you know, I know there have been stories about how that money should be in the hands of families who really need it. I agree, and this is why we need to do oversight, and which is also why when... Mitch McConnell wanted to just uh, give another $250 billion to PPP, no questions asked. We said, wait a minute. We know that in the first tranche, 
that uh, the average loans are something over 200,000. Uh, and so the, these uh, funds uh, were not going to what well, you and I would consider small businesses. So that's why we really had to negotiate for COVID-3 with the 310 billion setting aside 60 billion of it for of the small, you know, for community lenders. And so now the average loan under the national, the national average loan out of the PPP uh, sum is uh, like 79,000 as opposed to 200,000. And in Hawaii, the average loan amount has been 54,000. So more of this money is getting to the small businesses. But we know that they're still suffering. There is a need for more support, and that's what we ought to be doing rather than having hearings on uh, judges that, uh, whose positions aren't even open until September. There, there are concerns about the tourism industry and yeah. how we move forward. How can you help Hawaii move back into some normalcy when it comes to tourism? Well, when it comes to tourism, so much of our tourists come from the mainland, and so until our country has a much better uh, uh, handle on this virus, and there should be a national testing program. There should be national tracking of, of supplies, all of that, none of which is happening, by the way. And this is why every state is left to their own devices and there's piecemeal approaches. This is a pandemic. And so uh, we have continuously called on President Trump to fully implement the Defense Production Act so that there can be all these supplies. And, you know, you have the situation still of governors and uh, local governments vying against each other for necessary supplies and equipment and that should not be happening so until we get the national um, the, the, the virus much more under control through the development of a vaccine for example and other uh, treatment methods that actually work it's going to be hard for people on the mainland to start traveling and uh, so to the extent that hawaii's tourism uh, is a very, very large percentage of our tourists come from the mainland as well as other countries. We're going to need to deal with this healthcare crisis first before I think we can get the tourism industry back on track. At the same time, uh, we uh, you know, we will do everything we can that that when tourism does come back, and it's not as though we can just turn on the uh, the light switch and everything's going to come back to normal in, in the tourism side. We do need to support the diversification of our economy, something that Hawaii has sought to do for a long, long time. And I think uh, to the extent that we are moving forward with the energy self-sufficiency, creating more green jobs, uh, alternative energy production and jobs, uh, that is a good model. We're also going to need a lot more people with uh, STEM backgrounds and education, science, technology, engineering, and math. The state of Hawaii will have thousands, once we get back to some level of normalcy, thousands of jobs in those high-tech areas that we will need to fill. And I hope that we can fill it with uh, Hawaii, with local people. We will also obviously need to expand our health care capacity. So uh, we, I would like to provide... Uh, support for people going to medical school, nursing, all of the healthcare professions, we're going to need to strengthen. So right. those are some of the areas. That, and then the other thing is that, that this crisis has brought to the fore is the importance of food self-sufficiency. Hawaii exports, uh, imports, I should say, so much of our food that this is a time for us to take stock of our ability to grow our, our own food. That means that we need to provide, we can provide, more support for local farmers through making land less expensive, uh, making water available. There are things that we can do to very much um, support local farming. It's something that we can do in the next farm bill also at the federal level to provide a lot more support for what we call uh, specialty crops, which is all we have in Hawaii. This crisis has certainly uh, put our vulnerabilities in the glaring yes, light. Very much so. And all the inequities throughout our system. And so the people who are suffering the most from this pandemic and who are dying the most are uh, poor people and older people and the most vulnerable in our population. So the health disparities, the economic disparities, the racial disparities, all are coming to the fore. And let us hope that we don't just go back to the same old, same old, we need to address all of these 
glaring disparities because when not only because it's the right thing to do and humanitarian thing to do but we need to prepare for another pandemic that was part of a conversation we had this morning with Senator Maisie Hirono, who is in Washington, D.C., as the Senate is back in session tackling appointments to the federal bench. Hirono, who has uh, previous health challenges uh, with cancer, says she's taking precautions, uh, taking her temperature daily, wearing a mask, limiting exposure to people, and washing her hands frequently. And it is now time to take a look across the globe. As Paris remains on a tight lockdown, the rest of France begins to emerge from quarantine. And South Korea looks to provide a million face masks to foreign veterans of the Korean War to mark the 70th anniversary of the conflict. Here's the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday the 7th of May. I'm Alex Ritson. The French government has said Paris will continue to face restrictions after the country emerges from lockdown next week. And there's been a further steep rise in unemployment in the United States. The French Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, said the strict measures will be maintained in the Paris region when the rest of France begins to emerge from lockdown next week. He said the measures were needed because the coronavirus was circulating more quickly in and around the densely populated capital. It's a new step in the fight against the epidemic. It's good news for France and for the French people. It's a gradual process that will begin next Monday over the course of several weeks at least, which will allow the country to slowly but surely break out of the confinement that we've known in France, as have a very large number of countries around the world since the 17th of March. The country's borders will remain closed until at least the middle of next month. A decision on reopening bars and restaurants will be taken at the end of the month. There's been another big jump in the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits as the US grapples with how to emerge from the coronavirus lockdown. A further 3.2 million people filed claims this week. From New York, here's Samira Hussain. Really, just two months ago, the unemployment rate in the United States for the month was 3.5%. And fast forward to where we are now. In seven weeks since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, we have seen more than 33 million Americans file for unemployment benefits. There is no record of anything at this level ever happening before to the U.S. economy. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced a fund of more than two billion US dollars to boost the pay of essential frontline staff during the pandemic, such as care home workers. The money will be shared among the ten provinces which are responsible for determining exactly who'll receive the extra money. Pakistan's coronavirus lockdown is to be lifted on Saturday, despite the number of cases in the country accelerating. The Prime Minister, Imran Khan, said the decision is being taken because of the large number of people who can't afford to live under lockdown any longer. Our correspondent, Sekunda Kamani, has more. Experts predict that we're not at the peak yet. We won't be at that peak for a number of weeks, if not months. So uh, whichever way the authorities go in Pakistan, there are risks attached to it, whether you continue a lockdown and continue that impact on the poorer sections of society, or whether you ease restrictions as they're doing, but then potentially allow for greater rates of transmission. Official figures suggest that black people in England and Wales are dying from COVID-19 at nearly twice the rate of white people. People from ethnic South Asian communities were also found to be suffering at a higher rate than expected. The Office for National Statistics says some of the risk may be caused by social and economic factors which are not included in the data. The Kenyan government says it will now start covering the costs of people sent into quarantine because they're suspected of having coronavirus. The move is aimed at encouraging more people to come forward for testing, as many were afraid to do so in case they turned out to be positive and were sent into expensive quarantine. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, has outlined what a further lifting of restrictions to stop the coronavirus will look like, but has not yet decided when this will happen. Speaking at a news conference, Ms Ardern said easing the lockdown would be done carefully. We're better off in the longer term to move down through the alerts progressively. So it does mean getting every stage right. That means both the decision to go there, but also what we do when we get there. We think of ourselves as halfway down Everest, I think it's clear that no one wants to hike back up that peak. The descent is known to be even more dangerous, and so we need to proceed with caution. 
South Korea is providing one million face masks to foreign veterans of the Korean War to mark the 70th anniversary of the start of the conflict. Michael Bristow reports. The masks are being sent as an expression of gratitude to an estimated 400,000 overseas survivors who fought for the South from more than 20 countries. Seoul said all of those nations were currently experiencing difficulties with the virus. The average age of the veterans is 88, making them particularly vulnerable. Most ex-soldiers live in the United States, which supplied 90% of the foreign troops for South Korea in the conflict. And Japan has become the second country to approve the antiviral drug Remdesivir for use in treating coronavirus patients. The medicine, made by the American firm Gilead, received authorization in the United States last week. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. BOH.com. I'm Marco Werman from The World. Germany is letting kids go back to school in shifts. Italy eased its lockdown but remains vigilant. South Korea got its infection rate down to nearly zero, but they're still wearing masks. As communities across the U.S. work out their plans, our team is keeping track of how the rest of the planet is moving forward. It's the world. Join us. This afternoon at 1. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we are shining the spotlight on the First Lady of Limu, Isabella Iona Abbott. Known as Izzy, the future ethnobotanist was born in 1919 in the territory of Hawaii, Hanamaui to be exact. Her parents eventually moved the family to Oahu. Her dad was Chinese, her mother Hawaiian. It was through her mom that Izzy came to value Hawaii's diverse native plants, including edible seaweeds. It must have been interesting growing up, being the only girl in a family of eight siblings. Izzy grew up in Waikiki and graduated from Kamehameha schools in 1937. All of her degrees were for botany, starting with her undergraduate from UH Manoa, her master's from the University of Michigan, and following her marriage to zoologist Don Abbott, she became the first Native Hawaiian woman to receive a Ph.D. in science. For today's quiz, which school awarded Isabella Iona Abbott a doctorate in botany? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. This week, we've been turning the distance learning stone over and over. We reached out to Colorado College junior uh, Charlie Fox, who returned home to Honolulu and who was classes via Zoom starting at 8 in the morning. Fox, like students everywhere across the country, has had to do his learning through a webcam. Here's a snippet of a recent online art history class. And then if you feel like doing any other changes or you want to um, intensify certain places, just turn it back in again as an, and I think if you do it as an attachment, it doesn't underwrite, overwrite everything. Because some of you have been very successful in adding additional things to your assignments. 
And sometimes when you add additional things, it just deletes everything else. And it's just like the last two drawings. So I know that happened to a couple people. Now, Fox, who takes art and design classes under a block system, isn't keen on continuing with distance learning. He doesn't think it works for him. Objectively, no. I mean, being in an academic setting just on campus with your peers and having your professor in front of you is a lot di- is obviously very different. I will say my school is doing like, and what I've heard from my other friends too, are doing a pretty impressive job switching our classes over to distance learning. I was originally, my school is on a block system, so we only take one class at a time for a few weeks. And I was originally in an art class starting out, and then they had to cancel it because they didn't think art class would be feasible via distance learning. And then this professor I have now currently kind of redeveloped her class to be able to be done with just like a short or a small amount of materials and then adapted the the coursework and stuff to be able to like do them at home. My assignment last night was to do a 360 degree drawing, if you can imagine. So it's like a really long, thin drawing of a different room in your house. So I think they're being pretty innovative, but no, it's not definitely not the same. And I'm a little bummed to be, even though I'm not a senior, I feel so bad for the seniors at my school. Um, I'm so happy I wasn't a senior this year. It's interesting. I've FaceTimed like a few of my friends from who are on the mainland. And then I like, it's, I don't know. It's weird. Cause I feel like I know them so well at school and, but they have this whole other life with their family and, I don't know that, so I'm learning a few new things about my school friends, but yeah, it's not it's not the same for sure. Are you worried about next year? Since my school's kind of on a weird, um, since we only take one class at a time, and they call them blocks, um, there's like, they have a little bit more flexibility where like, they could like, take off one or two blocks and then kind of delay the start of the school year, um, potentially. Um, but I'm starting to look into potentially like taking a semester off. Um, if they are going to have to do distance learning for a full semester, I don't think it's worthwhile to be really paying to be at school if I can't really be there. But I know the co- our, the colleges, they need to make money and have enrollment. So I don't know what their plan is because I assume a lot of people are in my same situation and thinking about taking a semester off incoming freshmen probably would want to even take a gap year, I would assume. Um, If distance learning were to continue, that would, I can't imagine starting college via distance learning. Yeah, it's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, Um, expecting to be in a brand new place and meet all these new people. Are you working back in college in Colorado? With my need-based financial aid I get from school, I also have work study on campus. Originally, I worked doing communications for the Career Center, so I like do graphic design and social media and things for for them. Most kids on work study and who have on campus jobs aren't getting to work. And then thankfully, they granted at least the communications interns at the crew center, they're allowing us to work remotely. So for about maybe six hours, four to six hours a week, I'll do like work for the crew center because they're still having a lot of different events and services where students can come and like try and salvage some summer work opportunities or like how to make the best of this time or how to do like independent gig work. So I'm pretty thankful for my coworkers and supervisors at the career center for working, working that out for me so I can make a little money as well while I'm home. Everyone is struggling, I think kind of getting motivated. And I know when our classes were starting, they said you should mimic your morning commute to to class, like get out of your house and walk 10 minutes or five minutes somewhere and five minutes back to your house and then start start your day. Um, I don't think you need, and then when you're done with class, do another commute. I don't think you need to do that extent. Um, but for me, I think just keeping, getting to bed at a certain time, waking up at a certain time, doing classwork first thing in the morning. I'm able to work out a little bit, so working out every other day for me, just having structure. That was part of a conversation we had with Charlie Fox, a junior at Colorado College. 
He was debating whether or not to uh, take a semester off if his school opts to stay with distance learning for the fall. He shares that it's been an adjustment to being back home with mom and dad in his old room. It's been a challenge trying to fit his six-foot frame back into his old twin-size bunk bed. And he says he was more than ready to let go of his middle school memorabilia. You may have seen some of the TV commercials. Hawaii Pacific University has been making a push for Hawaii students to study in the islands through its state local campaign touting its affordability for Hawaii students and their families. We spoke to the private university's president, John Gotanda, about the push for Hawaii students to stay home in the islands. The school has long attracted a diverse student body, including many from Europe. Half of the out-of-state students remained in the dorms this semester, even though in-person classes were shifted online. But Gotanda says uh, its decision to broaden its local base had already uh, been in the mix prior to COVID-19. And he says interest in HPU, he says, is actually up, not down. Actually, as of May 1, we've had more deposits by freshman students than we've ever had. In fact, we've got a 20% increase in freshman students, including a large increase from both the mainland and internationally. So Hawaii, I think, is viewed very positively. And we've certainly come through this COVID-19 crisis very well. I I think, you know, as as the governor was saying, you know, we are one of the safest places in the world. And I, I think people are recognizing that. And I think people also recognize that we do offer a, a very distinctive type of of education and and they want to come to Hawaii and to get an education here and and so we haven't seen a dip at all but we would really love to have you know more people stay local now we recognize I think the studies are showing that about 15 to 20 percent of students actually remain undecided because of the pandemic and and what we're saying to those students also is again we're, we're we think we're a terrific location you know we're going to be back in the fall in person you know in classes we offer smaller classes we've we've already put into place you know and have plans for for social distancing in our classrooms and enhanced sit cleaning and reduced density in our dorms we think though that personalized education that is at the heart of of an HBU education is going to continue in the fall in in the way we sort of uh, envision it with one-on-one interaction sort of with our faculty. So we would love to, you know, provide more opportunities really for for local students that may be thinking at this point they'd rather stay home because of of what's going on, you know, all across the country. Right, because maybe they were looking at schools in certain hotspots, you know, whether it's New York or Seattle. And interestingly, you know, in this past spring, we actually had 50, over 50 percent of our students remained in the dorms rather than, than go home. I think, again, Hawaii was viewed as a safer location, and we were viewed as a place where they, you know, parents and their families felt that it was you know, safe and, and healthy to keep their students. You know, the classrooms, we, we were uh, projected in, in some cases to lose almost two-thirds of our classrooms, uh, seating space. But on the other hand, we really don't have large classes to begin with. So, you know, the social distancing in classrooms isn't hard to, to accomplish. In the dorms, it's a little more challenging. And there, we will lose some, some of the density in the dorms because we do want to keep extra rooms sort of available. We do want to spread out students. And fortunately, at our Aloha Tower Marketplace facility, we have a lot, most of the dorms there are actually more like, like apartment-style lofts. And so the density is already sort of reduced in that that space. And so I think we we actually won't lose that many spaces in the end. But we are also taking some extra sort of enhancements to our facilities. We're we're looking at everything from uh, replacing sort of air filters to extra sort of cleaning procedures and doing doing a whole lot of things to make sure that that our community is is, uh, healthy and safe.
I'm not sure how the housing managers are looking at this. I mean, if let's say you had a what would have been a double room is now a single room, I mean, does that mean that the student pays more in the dorm costs? No, not at all. You know, it, and, and we're not going to charge uh, students more to, to be in a, uh, uh, you know, enhanced sort of healthy environment. Everyone uh, should have and, and should feel safe and, and healthy in our our facilities and so we are not adding on sort of extra just because that they were reducing the density uh, in the dorms toward to our students and how has the distance learning been for uh, your school community we actually are, are rated as uh, having the best online programs in the state of Hawaii and and many of our professors have taught both in the online and on ground program so when we switched actually entirely to an online environment you know, many faculty were were ready to go, and and they they knew how to adapt to that environment to keep sort of the students engaged in their sort of classes. They really didn't miss a beat. And then what we did was, and I thought was just terrific on the part of my colleagues. They they also took all of the support services, the tutoring services moved online, library services moved online, counseling services instantly moved online and then they took all of the student activities and moved them online too. So student government meetings moved online, student government uh, and and student uh, activities moved online, Uh, yoga, online yoga was held, online uh, esports tournaments. Uh, We had everything from talent shows to even our capstone presentations all moved online. And the capstone presentations were viewed by 900 people this year in our online format and it was just terrific we had chat rooms set up so that students who made the presentations in videos then would go into a chat room and then the people who viewed that that video could go and have a conversation with that student about their research what they did the presentations and could ask them questions it just was a terrific experience for everyone have you gotten any feedback from students who might have the challenge of uh, multiple time zones oh yes (laughs) <laughs> and that is that is a challenge, uh, but but we tried to work with each student individually. You know, we had some students also return to Europe too, uh, and so it, it was at times a bit challenging, particularly if they were wanting to participate in in let's say the uh, the group uh, presentation, like there would be a group either presentation or or a critique and a group group um, of of a project, uh, and so. You know, those were challenges that had to be sort of uh, handled and, and overcome. And we did make accommodations for, for many students on that. But I have to tell you, both actually my wife and I uh, participate in, in meetings both across the country and around the globe. She's a, uh, you know environmental lawyer and, and still has a very active practice all, all over the country. And so yeah, I think that's the way of the world today. I, and particularly for people in Hawaii, you know, we are really at, at the center of, of the Pacific, but also really uh, at a very good strategic location. So you can, you can actually have this, these meetings with people all over the world. I was just in a meeting actually not too long ago with someone in Asia, someone in, in South America, someone in Washington, D.C., and, and in Europe all at the same time. And we all found the time zone where we could make it work. It can be done. Distance learning, like it or not, is it the way of the world? That was John Gotanda, president of Hawaii Pacific University. The school has been making a push to attract local students. Uh, It's beefing up its incentives through its Holomua commitment, which will meet 100% of tuition needs for first-time students from Hawaii. For more information, visit hawaiipublicradio.org. Our reality check today continues with the higher education thread. Honolulu Civil Beats' Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi there. Good morning, Kevin. So we've got a story by Suwon Lee about uh, housing at UH Manoa. Right. It touches a, a little bit on the story that you just had with HPU, so, some overlap there, but it has its own unique features as well. Suvon, of course, covers education for us. K through 12 in the public schools, but also looks at private, looks at the university. And here's the deal. A lot of students that are still living in the dorms, about 750 total, were pretty surprised to get a letter, an email, 
uh, from UH last week saying, hey, you got to move out by May 16th, which I think is what, next uh, next Saturday, is that right? Uh, they have been in uh, the dorm since the, the shutdown in mid-March due to coronavirus. That includes about 384 uh, that are from out of state and another 43 that are international. Now, with those international students, they've got their own situation given their visa status and whatnot. But bottom line, where are you going to go? I mean, with the stay-at-home order still in effect until May 31st, are you going to get a hotel? That's going to be pretty expensive if you can find one. What other housing is available? Are you going to move back in with your own family? Uh, so these are the kind of things that caught a lot of students by surprise at UH Manoa. Yeah, and she talked to a student what, from yeah. California, right? It's going to go back? Right, Vacaville, as, as it turns out. That's in Northern California. And uh, <laughs> this particular student, his own mother and his own auntie, actually tested positive uh, for coronavirus. So what are you going to do there? He, he is, I believe, going to have to return in about two weeks, and hopefully that incubation period or whatever it's called will have passed by then. But it shows you the dire straits that a lot of folks are in because of COVID-19, as if there weren't enough problems due to the pandemic. So is the idea that, what, then they're just kicking the kids out because, what, they want to clean the place? They absolutely want to clean the place. Uh, Dan Meisenthal, the UH spokesman, did speak with Sue Vaughn. And, you know, cleaning, disinfecting these dormitories. Uh, there will be some summer school housing provided. Uh, and then the fall semester doesn't start until August 24th. But they do want to get a head start on, on getting everything cleaned out. Uh, David Lassner, the UH president, um, acknowledges that this is a difficult thing that they're having to do. Uh, and you mentioned distance learning at the HPU. That, too, is something that's already been in effect uh, with UH because of COVID, and that's going to continue. But, boy, it, it caught a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, I mean, your heart does go out to that one California student. I mean, you, you kind of hope that if he doesn't go back, if you know, the UH uh, folks can make an exception. Yeah, could you maybe relax the restrictions given the unprecedented circumstances going forward? Uh, and none of this is set in stone, but um, it, it is possible, as was mentioned earlier, you could be moving from two-person uh, dormitory rooms to one. I was in a two-room dormitory my freshman year in Colorado. So that is a reality that was touched on earlier. And what about the dining hall? I mean, that's uh, I, I was a regular at the dining hall when I was in my undergraduate years. You're going to have to come up with some ways to separate those tables and customers. Uh, but all of this still being worked out. And this, again, is an anticipation of the fall semester. Yeah, uh, lots of adjustments, lots of change to come. Uh, but yeah, it just does seem startling that you would just get a couple of weeks notice to move out. Yeah. In fact, like I said, it was just last Friday. Now, remember, the semester was going to end, <laughs> is still going to end. I mean, school still is in, in session until May 16th. So maybe it shouldn't have been a complete surprise. But again, with the, the you know, the quarantine in effect, what if you're a neighbor island student, for example, how is that going to work? Um, but um, this is something hopefully Suvan will have an update, particularly as we move into the summer and fall. Okay, yeah, so they have to worry about finals and getting out of the dorms. Lovely. <laughs> oh, boy, double curse. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. One of the many ways the coronavirus pandemic has changed the world is that it has greatly limited the choices we get to make every day. It gives you a greater recognition of what you really have in your control and what things you really don't have as much control over. The relationship between choices and happiness. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Tonight at 7, following says you. 
Earlier in the show, we told you about Isabella Izzy Iona Abbott, recognized as the first Native Hawaiian woman to receive a Ph.D. in science. Born in Hanamaui to a Chinese father and Hawaiian mother, the budding botanist learned early to value Hawaii's diverse range of Native plants. Through her mom, she learned about Hawaii algae, or limu, and she recalls spending many hours in her youth gathering seaweed used in traditional Hawaiian foods. The Iona family eventually moved to Waikiki, where Izzy grew up. She graduated from Kamehameha Schools in 1937 and obtained her undergraduate degree in botany from the University of Hawaii Manoa Campus, her master's in botany from the University of Michigan, and in 1950 she was awarded her doctorate in algal taxonomy from the University of California at Berkeley. Dubbed the First Lady of Limu, she is considered the world's leading expert on Hawaiian seaweeds and over her long career authored eight books and over 150 publications. Uh, we stumped you on that one, so we have no winners today. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Mother's Day is coming up on Sunday, and to mark the special day, we take a look at a book entitled Wave Woman, The Life and Struggles of a Surfing Pioneer. It's written by Vicki Durant in honor of her thrill-seeking mom, Betty Pembroke Haldrick Winstead. Well, I was inspired to write Wave Woman to tell the story of my mother's adventurous life. She believed that anything exciting was worth trying at least once. She started surfing at age 40 on a vacation trip to Hawaii. And after she moved here, two years later, she entered the Makaha International Surfing Contest in 1956 and took second place. Because of that, a year later, she was invited to be on the first Hawaiian surfing team to Lima, Peru, and she won first place down there. And during her life, she broke glass ceilings, finding meaning as a dental hygienist, sculptor, a jeweler, a surfer, a builder, a fisherwoman, a potter, and lastly, a poet. She wrote haiku poetry. She had such an inspiring life. I just believe that the story needed to be told. This comes at a, at a really good time because, you know, surfing you know, will be included for the first time in the uh, Japan Olympics whenever it's held. We've got Carissa Moore on the team. It's just going to elevate the sport. And to think that, yeah, that your mom took up big wave surfing, you know, she took, you know, that on just after right. learning is just amazing. I know. Well, she was a great athlete. She loved the ocean. And she was a, a thrill seeker throughout her life, had such a belief in herself that uh, she could do whatever she, she could do whatever she wanted to do. She had, she had no fear. So my hope is that, you know, people reading the book will take some of her, what, what she did in mind and step out of their comfort zone and know that it's never too late to follow a dream. She just approached life's obstacles with a sense of calm she was she was a stoic but she had a strong determination and she always pushed herself to do just a little bit more well you know when you describe your mother and her experience there at makaha you know and i think of rel sun and the battles that she had with cancer but you know the fact that right. you know she was just uh she was an amazing surfer too and and you know your right. mom probably paved the way for you know the generations that came after uh to really just get out there and and take on right. the waves right when rel was seven years old and mother was surfing at makaha but that was before leashes we we were right at kind of the renaissance of this whole surfing movement. So when mother would lose her board outside, you know, it was a long swim in. And often when she'd get into the beach, Rel would have her board and catching little shore breaks and, and fooling around on it until she could get in and, and get it. And 
we remained friends with her. We were neighbors and friends until the end of Rill's life, and I tell a little bit about that in the book. And Mother, really interesting, in 1957, when we were surfing together, Mother told me, she said, you know, Vicki, this sport is going to be really big, and you should take notes because one day you're going to want to write about it. And I didn't take any notes. I said, I'm too busy doing living the sport. You take the notes. But that gives and me chicken she, skin, you know, to think that she saw the future. She was very insightful. She grew up in Salt Lake City, and when she was a senior in high school, 1929, she had lived a life of privilege, but her father lost everything in the when the collapse happened, and she was sent off to boarding school with her two sisters to, to finish school. And she was such a realist that she went and just did her best and finished high school. She was voted the most most valuable athlete during her senior year and then went down to Santa Monica and started rough water swimming. And she competed. She trained for the 1936 Olympics that were going to be held in Berlin. She didn't have enough food or enough money, but she had been told by a friend who was a dentist that if she could go to school and learn how to be a dental hygienist, she would have a job. So she got into SC and was in the second class to graduate in a brand new profession. And she was a dental hygienist. And so a career and career profession was very important to her and she believed that all women should have this in order to be independent she was very 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 independent and believed in that really firmly now you mentioned the olympics of that time yeah and i'm trying to think now weren't the olympics canceled the games because of the war they were canceled but what happened to her is she started flying and after her she had her eight-hour student license flying a Waco plane out of the old L.A. airport. She talked these um, glider, uh, Gus Briglip, who uh, was one of the early glider builders and flyers, talked them into letting her go up in this glider to solo, and she ended up crashing it from 65 feet into the ground and got a compound fracture in her leg. So that that ended her training at the she was training at the Los Angeles Athletic Club. So that that ended it for her. Well, she just sounds fearless though. She was. When you I guess think of the the parallels, you know, with this time because the Olympics have been, you know, put off uh, and right. there was much, you know, ballyhoo about putting surfing on the international <laughs> stage with our ambassadors of surf, John John Florence and Carissa Moore. Uh, um, I was at a, an event recently where Carissa talked about, you know, we surf with Aloha, and and they're trying to yeah. g- get that going because they figure the sport is just going to get more popular, and people need to know that you've got to get out there, but be humble and kind of learn learn the lineup. You know, learn how you're supposed to act and, and, and surf with Aloha. When we were surfing in the mid and later 50s, there were just a very few people surfing. There were only 2,000 people surfing on the whole island of Oahu. So at Makaha, there were there were plenty of, of waves for everybody. So it, it's been since surfing has gotten more popular and more people that uh, this surfing with Aloha is really gotten to be you know more crucial but we we didn't have that problem and we didn't have there weren't very many women that were surfing there was you know mother Etha Kukea who won 55 and 56 she won the Makaha contest there were waves for everybody you know there were maybe six to eight people out surfing at, at Makaha when we were there so it was it was great, very unlike today, and I just feel so grateful that we were able to enjoy that time and and place in 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 the world of surfing. You know, as you see more women gain prominence, you see the equal prize money in the professional surfing arena. I was just really glad to see that bill pass where 
where the women want equal time in the in the contest here. I still think they're hedging a little bit from what I can read, but at least the bill was passed and I think women should be allowed to go in and surf big waves if they want to. I think it definitely should be equal. I think if they train, uh, they're just as well-suited as men, if not more. Well, I know at the uh, Eddie Icau, um event, I think uh, Kelly Kentley has uh, she's got the invite to participate whenever whenever the the waves are right, you know. So, but when you think of of someone like that, you know, competing on the same wave as the men, I mean, it's just awesome. Yeah, I know. No, it's great. And maybe the women should be together, and the men should be together, not women against men. Yeah, lots of uh, lots so, of conversations to have around uh, the sport. Yeah, uh, really. But, <laughs> but this is great history, so we, we certainly appreciate you uh, sharing your mother's story uh, at this time. For me, it was just a story that, that had to be, you know, had to be told. And, you know, she was fearless, no limiting beliefs, and, and she encouraged that and everybody that she came into contact with and people just loved to be around her because she was so strong but never really overpowering and she saw the good in everybody and lifted others up and and wanted her friends to be the best that that they could be and uh, she just always pushed to the limit to learn something new with her adventurous spirit and her sense of humor and believed that she wanted to make things happen uh, for herself, not waiting around for other people to to make things happen. And she was an amazing artist. She could look at an animal or a figure and carve it in miniature. She had a great gift as a sculptor. She just had so many interests and was a lifelong learner and knew more about politics and science than any of her family when she at age she lived to be 98 and a half and she wanted to live to be a hundred but she uh, ended up with a blood pathogen that ended her life at 98 and a half but she was really an amazing role model role model wave rider wave woman is the name of the book written by vicki durant about her mom and because of the social distancing restrictions, the book was launched virtually last month at the shop in Kaimuki. Durant, however, will give an author's talk online on Sunday, Mother's Day, at 2 p.m. But heads up, you will need to pre-register to join. Find links at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that winds it up for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show devoted to culture and the arts. Give us some feedback about anything you may have heard on air. Call our talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can connect on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.